Oh, finally. Uh, sorry about that. I'm Ed Nersessian, director of the center. Today's program, The Body and Psychosis, was uh, proposed by Professor Vittorio Galese, who is sitting right there. Um, Dr. Jerry Horowitz will be uh, introducing the participants and uh, watch over the discussion with a light touch. Uh, on, uh, I'm just going to give you an update about the programs we are planning for the rest of the year. On March 18, Professor John Williams has organized one on memory. On April 8, Professor Chris Impey from Arizona is doing Life Beyond Earth, When and How Will It Be Found? On April 22nd, Ellen Gilbert is organizing Shakespeare Forever. On May 13th, Professor John Chun, Crisis in the University. On September 23rd, Professor Catherine Elkins organizing one on emotions. On October, the date is not yet clear. There will be a round table and uh, the title will either be a uh, generational divide in mathematics or shift in paradigm in mathematics, paradigm shift in mathematics. And then on November 1st, we have Professor David Greenspoon doing on planetary intelligence. So that's the program for 2023. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jerry Hurwitz. Um, Ed forgot to mention if the aliens actually do arrive ahead of that uh, talk, we'll we'll schedule something else. I'm here to announce uh, the, the, our participants today. That's a wonderful group. First, uh, if you could raise your hand and mention your name, Elias Dakwar is an associate professor of Colum at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is a board certified addiction and general psychiatrist. He has, been he has been researching novel treatments for addictions for over a decade, support of several grants from the National Institutes of Health, period. Um, a special focus of his research has been evaluating sub-anesthetic ketamine infusions for cocaine use disorders in both laboratory and clinical settings, as well as investig investigating ketamine infusions as an adjunct to mindfulness-based treatment, mind-body practices, motivational interviewing, and other behavioral frameworks for alcohol, cannabis, and opioid use disorders. George Hilton Denfield is a Leon Levy Fellow in Neuroscience and Psychiatry Resident Physician at Columbia University and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He completed his BS at Tufts University, concentrating in biopsychology and cognitive science. Dr. Daniel Dennett served as an advisor to his thesis, exploring whether and how notions of cognitive modularity might be reflected and instantiated in neuroanatomical structures. And then the, the originator of this talk, Vittorio Galese, um, is a trained neurologist and professor of psychobiology at the University of Parma in Italy, where he is director of the Lab of Social Cognitive Neuroscience. Fellow at the International Academy of Advanced Studies in America of, at, of Columbia University. He's an honorary fellow of the Institute of Philosophy at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. 
and honorary member of the American College of Psychiatrists. Cognitive neuroscientist, his research focuses on the relation between the sensory motor system and social cognition by investigating the neurobiological grounding of intersubjectivity, psychopathology, language, and aesthetics. He is the author of more than 300 scientific publications and three books. Siri Hustvedt is an author of a book of poetry. Um, Reading to You is the name of the books and several novels, The Blindfold, The Enchantment of Lily Dahl, What I Loved, Sorrows of an American, The Summer Without Men, The Blazing World, and Memories of the Future, as well as five essay collections. A woman looking, um, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's what I was trying to jump ahead, right? So, no, but thank you. No, there's a lot and it's wonderful. There's a lot and it's wonderful and it should be read, but we're, you know, okay. Um, I wanna jump ahead. She um, has a PhD from Columbia University in English literature and is a lecturer in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City. Her scholarly interests are interdisciplinary. Um, she has given numerous lectures at scientific and academic conferences on philosophy, neuroscience, neurology, psychiatry, and literature and published papers in scientific and scholarly journals. Gail Weiss is professor of philosophy at George Washington University. She recently served as executive co-director of the Society for Phenomenology and Existentialism and as general secretary for the International Merleau-Ponty Circle. Her previous monographs include Refiguring the Ordinary and Body Images, Embodiment as Intercorporeality. And she is currently completing a monograph entitled Existential Ambiguities, Beauvoir and Merleau-Ponte. In 2020, she credited, she credited 50 concepts for critical phenomenology with Anne Murphy and Gail Salomon. Thank you very much. So we agreed in advance that uh, Victoria might open with a few comments about what made you think of this uh, roundtable, and we'll go from there. Yeah, first of all, <clears throat> thank you for, for having us here, for hosting this uh, debate. I'm very looking forward to uh, its outcome since we will we, be in a position to hear um, different points of view from different backgrounds. I myself am not a psychiatrist. I was trained as a, a neurologist. I'm basically a neuroscientist. Uh, a mechanic of the brain body, so to speak. But I developed an interest in schizophrenia and psychosis a long time ago. Uh, and I think my first encounter with schizophrenia was during my undergraduate years when a teacher of a psychiatry uh, brought patients to the class, had them interview, read uh, part of their diaries. And so maybe this sort of existential imprinting uh, with schizophrenia uh, was able to play a role in steering part of my research somehow 20 years ago in this direction. Uh, neuroscience should be spelled in the plural because there are a variety of approaches. Uh, we all look at the brain, but um, with different scales. We go from the tiny, very little uh, micro level of receptors, neurotransmitters, to a more integrative view, which uh, somehow uh, tried to find a, a correlation between the functioning of large chunks of the brain, brain circuits, 
and behavior. I belong to that part of, uh, of neuroscience. And why schizophrenia? Well, because schizophrenia, as um, an old psychiatrist, uh, a long time ago would have defined it, before being a disease, is um, one of the many possible way uh, uh, to understand human existence. And this brings me to the second point. Uh, today we live uh, in the age of categorical psychiatry, which is very useful because we can exchange data from different countries. Whenever we say schizophrenic spectrum or uh, OCD, everybody understands what we're talking about. So I'm not questioning the, the, the relevance and usefulness of this approach. Unfortunately, in my opinion, nature though is not categorical, but a dimension. So there was a time when some psychiatrists uh, um, approach mental diseases from a more dimensional point of view. And for example, uh, Binswanger was one of them and he was defining schizophrenia as a variation, a wandlung of the many possible ways of declining uh, uh, human existence. I think there are also very important ethical implications uh, from this dimensional uh, uh, psychiatric approach. But to make a long story short, my interest uh, uh, in schizophrenia started from the realization that more than a hundred years of psychopathological thought, mostly continental, German, French, Italian, Danish, uh, never made it to neuroscience. I mean, the, the great bulk of research, very useful, very interesting, we need that desperately, was focused on the uh, micro level, genetic level of description, uh, neurotransmitters level of description, but the phenomenal experience of living your life, being in this condition was totally left out from uh, the laboratory with uh, uh, very few exceptions. So we decided to uh, tackle the, the topic of schizophrenia from a bottom-up point of view. And by bottom-up, I refer uh, to the, the level of description of experience, which is another big neglected topic in neuroscience as we speak, experience and the body. And before shutting up, <laughs> I would like to read a few lines from a schizophrenic patient, published by a friend of mine, Professor Thomas Fuchs, who is in Heidelberg University, who speaks as a 20-year-old uh, woman. Begin quote. For some time, I had a feeling as if my clothes did not seem appropriate anymore. My gait had changed. I walked stiffly and did not know how to hold my hand. Then I often looked into the mirror and found that my facial expression had changed. And I began to think that I might be regarded as a prostitute. Men looked so strange at me. I took passport pictures of myself in order to examine whether I only imagined that. Then I began to feel a kind of charging or tension in my body when others came near to me, as if it were passing over from them. Finally, I thought, I should be made a prostitute by brain manipulation. I think this very concise uh, report from this patient uh, in remission, when, when she said that, um, 
tell us something very interesting about the progression of the disease and the relationship between negative and positive symptoms, which is a very old intuition by psychopathologists like Eugene Minkowski, for example, who, whose book on schizophrenia, I'm afraid, was never translated in English. And this, I think, oh. is something that should be done. Um, so the idea is that uh, the basic crashing uh, occurs at the level of uh, the core dimension of the self, the bodily self or core self, or ipsity, to use the term uh, employed by Louis Sasse and Joseph Parnas. And from that, the, the positive aspects, uh, the delusional aspects uh, can be viewed as a sort of compensatory defensive mechanism to give sense uh, uh, to an existence that has totally lost uh, any clear meaning uh, when the patient relates to the world. And this is something that can be addressed by neuroscience. And this is something that we are currently being addressing in the last uh, 15 years or so. Well, this is uh, anecdotal. I had a job as a volunteer writing teacher for patients at Payne Whitney, not far away. And um, one thing, uh, Victoria was just mentioning, if you're at all versed in diagnostic categories, it gets, in fact, rather easy to identify, uh, especially psychotic patients in, in, your, in your class, even when they're uh, medicated. Um, and one of the observations I made uh, was that uh, the patients were generally more linguistically creative than the staff members who sometimes sat in, that we should remember. And also that especially people who had disorders that included psychosis had a lot of problems with narrative, right? So telling a story, which if you think about Paul Ricoeur and his beautiful way of thinking about narrative as making meaning through causes. The fragmentation and interruption in psychotic disorders make telling a story really difficult. It didn't make poetic bursts of language difficult. Um, but I think that sense of linkage, which um, is disrupted, and there are many testimonies from people who've suffered. I will save it for later, but uh, Antonin Artaud, the great uh, playwright and um, theater person in France, wrote letters to his doctor about really prodromal schizophrenia when it's beginning to happen to him, and it is a hugely physical description, um, something uh, to keep in mind. I think that's what's really striking when you look at the diagnostic uh, criteria that we use in the DSM and how little the body factors yes. into the yeah. criteria we actually use to diagnose uh, schizophrenia or other psychotic conditions, but when you interact with uh, people who are undergoing psychotic experiences, the body features very prominently in, yeah. in what they describe. And that's a pretty 
striking disconnect uh, between how we've characterized it and how people feel the experience themselves. Don't you think it's the uh, neo-Cartesian legacy of, uh, of you know, first-generation cognitive science that's been hanging on for a long time despite paradigm changes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am, I am inclined to agree with that. And, and so I think, you know, about, I mean, I'm very interested in, uh, so other part of my background is also as a, a neuroscientist, um, a systems neuroscientist, and very interested in thinking about how we can kind of work in these alternate uh, paradigms into uh, neuroscience and framing neuroscience research from these different perspectives that are more embodied and uh, ultimately more biologically rooted than a lot of the sort of cognitivist approaches that yeah. have dominated historically. reading license plates. I mean, I actually had a, a friend of mine who went through a, a period of, of, of psychotic experience like this, where he found um, completely coherent patterns in license plates that related to his own 
existence. And there was nothing, I hate to use that word, it was coherent. There were aspects of contextual reality that were missing, but the patterns had a logic that was perfect. You say it's almost a super coherent, some of these stories, because of the fixity of the thoughts, the narrative. I think what's most interesting about the topic uh, is the intimacy involved, which, um, as, as you said, isn't often inquired into when diagnosing. We treat the, the person as, as, a, as an object in the world, in a way. Um, and, and forget that they're also um, uh, being in, in the world in, 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 in their own manner and, and uh, describe for the purposes of diagnosis what we see. And, and that invariably misses a lot. Yeah, there, there's still very little being done in terms of uh, uh, a comparative differential approach to, to schizophrenia, for example. So we, we put a lot of effort in, in uh, um, framing, uh, the, so to speak, the, the pattern of the genetic profile of the neurotransmitter profile uh, mm -hmm. with respect mm -hmm. to affective diseases or other forms uh, of uh, uh, mental diseases, but uh, not so much uh, at this level of description uh, of the body. And uh, that, there's a debate, indeed. Uh, um, uh, I, I was recently having a, a longer walk in Brooklyn with, with Louis Sass, oh. and we were we were chatting on on uh, the relationship between some aspects of schizophrenia, which seems to affect this core nucleus of the self that Joseph Parnas yeah. uh, calls uh, ipsity. Whether this is really a specific uh, uh, um, characterization of schizophrenia, or if rather some uh, aspects of a defective ipsity can be found also elsewhere, for example, in uh, depersonalization. Yeah. So in, in our lab, we are, uh, as we speak, investigating both schizophrenia and depersonalization disease in a variety of domain, uh, the way um, a patient map the space around their body that we call peripersonal space, the way they deal with time travel, and there are differences. And um, I can't say much because this is still an ongoing process, but uh, what we found, for example, is that um, uh, in depersonalization disorder, the mapping of peripersonal space is not affected at all, while it is in schizophrenia. Mm. It, it shrinks, is mm. much more limited. Uh, uh, this is not the case in the personalization uh, uh, disease, which seems to be, in, in terms of the dimensionality uh, um, we were discussing before, similar, but uh, with a less degree of intensity. Schizophrenia seems to uh, affect uh, the, the true pillars upon which we build a coherent uh, yeah. way of relating to the world, which uh, we are not able to find in, in uh, the personalization. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Sass and Parnas talk about that, about anchoring um, this very primary sense of being 
dislocated from both agency and ownership when it comes to the body. Um, another anecdote that a psychiatrist friend told me many years ago, a psychoanalyst psychiatrist, she um, had an appointment with a schizophrenic patient, a patient rather who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And right before she went to the session, she had had her hair cut short. And when he entered the room of her office, he looked at her and he said, oh no, you cut my hair. Mm. And that's when she was, you know, alerted, you know, this is not a, just a phenomenal problem, right? This is not just about what's happening at the level of language, but that, you know, the possibility of that kind of reversal, which um, I think in this case, he didn't seem to be suffering, but some people can suffer that very easily. Yeah, we take very much for granted the, the way in which we typically differentiate boundaries between self and other, and that does seem to be a, a core feature of at least certain varieties of, of psychotic experience that that breaks down. And it's very interesting sort of what, uh, what is the cause of that, like biologically or otherwise? Well, the etiology of schizophrenia is just a mystery. Yeah, like many other yeah, issues. Many other things. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about narrative and causality and the body and you know psychosis uh, is the title. So what do you think the connection is? Or can you start to uh, outline what the connection is between the body and some disturbance and a sense of causality or a sense of narrative? Well, it was interesting kind of um, when we were talking about different varieties of psychosis and one that seemed to have a more intact narrative structure, or at least one that uh, people who are not currently having a psychotic experience feel like they could understand and relate to versus other varieties that seem more disorganized. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I was, I've recently been reading some uh, work from Matthew Ratcliffe and his book, Feelings of Being. Uh, which is very interesting. I would definitely recommend um, people uh, look at that because he's talking about how the, 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 the way that the body shapes uh, our sense of reality and our sense of belonging in the world uh, and how changes in bodily feelings are actually something that happen a lot in day-to-day -day sort of typical experience, but we don't pay a lot of attention to it or we aren't fully oriented to it, but that more persistent or more intense different varieties of changes in those bodily feelings can really alter our sense of belonging in the world and our sense of reality, how the world appears to us, whether it's a welcoming, familiar uh, environment that feels easy to interact with, or whether it's unfamiliar, frightening, threatening in some way. And uh, it's interesting because he orients us specifically to how those are sort of two sides of the same coin of our feeling of being in the world is at the same time a feeling of the body. And so that really implicates the body very 
deeply and centrally in just our general sense of reality and therefore in uh, alterations to that sense of reality. I think if, if you, I'm very interested in exactly, so if you extend this, which will create a relationship narrative that our, um, you know, rhythmic bodily reality that is part of movement in time via the repetitions, the simplest ones, right? Breathing, heartbeat, that become walking, walking that is also experienced by uh, the fetal being. They know this right very uh, early on. So rhythm is part of our reality. It's timing that's felt and experienced. It's not time, that abstraction, right? That, that physicists talk about, but the real bodily time. I think that is where the Buddhist narratives are. Mm. I'm thinking about um, the way a body can be both um, inhabited and mm -hmm. um, um, existing as a mode of being in the world, but also as something other people interact with, mm -hmm. um, as a thing in the world that um, we have no claim to. And, and I, I, I suspect that depending on which, is that? I think I'm lost. But, no, no, you're back. Okay. Um, I, I imagine depending on on the mode of arrangement, whether someone is inhabiting the body and inhabiting being in a very idiosyncratic way, or um, oh. on the other hand, um, feeling more of an object hmm. than than one should feel. Um, different narratives emerge. Um, uh, it's it's visceral, Kupfer and Leib, he calls it, which is the body as thing, you know, the body seen, um, you know, like in an anatomical uh, drawing, and the lived or experienced body. And these are parts of all human experience. And I think you're right, in some um, schizophrenic or psychotic experiences, the object part of the self so you lose the intense location of your lived self. Mm. Or, or or how you relate to your own body about that when you were thinking about you know the body is something we inhabit but also it, it's out there in the world and the way in which and, and in a way that outstrips our intentions and also connects us always to to other people and uh, and the relationships that we sustain and i think one of the dangers is viewing the body too you know atomistically the body and it reminds me, um, I'm a, a Merleau-Ponty person, but at the end of the Phenomenology of Perception, Merleau-Ponty concludes with a quote from Saint-Exupéry that talks about each person is a knot of relations. 
a K-N-O-T, not of relations. And I love that expression. And I think about how that captures a whole gamut of even psychotic, different ways in which those relations get disrupted, get maybe, but there's always, there's different kinds of things going on there that can't, again, nonlinear, but that I think that's such a helpful concept to think about, um, to think about each person as a knot of relations. Those, that knot can kind of get loosened. Um, I'm doing work on aging right now and thinking about, um, you know, I've got a paper I'm writing called Unraveling the Ties that Bind the Social Fragility of Old Age and how as someone gets older and their 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 peers die, their maybe their partner dies and friends die. And and then yet they may have caretakers or people coming into their home who are strangers, but now have an intimate relationship and caring for them and for their body. And so that that's a way in which this knot of relations gets reformed and that there's ways in which we don't give enough credit. We focus so much on the physical fragility of old age and not enough about those kinds of social challenges, which people have had negotiate um, better for better, you know, in better ways or worse ways. But I don't think there's as much support for that. But so anyway, that's just something I was thinking. Well, about. although I mean, uh, for one time, I would like to sound optimistic. Um, <laughs> there are many signals telling us that neuroscience is finally moving in the right direction uh, for a variety of reasons. First because more and more people are realizing that it's time perhaps to close the drawer of the post-Cartesian solipsistic approach mm -hmm. to the mind with, with, with we, this ill-defined notion uh, that always comes up. Um, for example, this tradition taught us uh, for decades that what you were talking about, uh, bodily behavior is intentionally opaque. Mm -hmm. There's no way yeah. to get any meaning about what the other is up to unless mm -hmm. from that ostensive behavior we reach uh, a sort of hidden uh, uh, set of propositional aptitudes by theorizing, uh, which is certainly something we can do. We are pretty good at that, but that's definitely not the whole story. Mm -hmm. So now we, we speak of social neuroscience, second person approach, people like Schildbach, for example, develop paradigm to study uh, at the very least dyadic interactions in, uh, we start using hyperscanning, which means to study two brain or three or more, possibly brain bodies at once yeah. in, in a more ecological interaction. And the third element uh, of, of optimism is that um, even in our Western tradition, we are marching towards a far more holistic notion of, um, of, of an organism. So we, we study more and more the relationship between the brain and the heart, uh, the brain, the heart, and the guts. Uh, there are colleagues and friends of ours uh, studying the relationship between political discourse and gut feelings. Yeah. So there's this new mm -hmm. term, interoception. Exteroception mm -hmm. deals with um, our perception of what happens outside of our body. Interoception refers to what's going on inside our body. Uh, you were mentioning Merleau-Ponty. Uh, he was acquainted with Kurt Goldstein. Goldstein was one of the yeah. few mm -hmm. who had this intuition about a more holistic view mm -hmm. of... Um, of, uh, of humans and of, of uh, organism. And uh, I think we are 
starting moving in that direction. And I think we, we are about to learn a lot more by integrating uh, the immune system, the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, the brain, the heart, and um, inflammation. Inflammation is a very hot topic in all branches of medicine. And um, so perhaps we need a new synthesis, but, but um, um, uh, you can see it happens as we speak. Direction in which uh, neuroscience is expanding too, which holds a lot of promise, uh, is um, in terms of uh, movement, getting back to kind of what we were talking to about the rhythms yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that kind of define our existence in many ways. Uh, most of the experiments that we do in neuroscience, whether it's in humans or animals, are in sort of a confined situation where people aren't moving, where the animals aren't moving, and yet in our lives, we're moving all the time and the brain, so much of the brain is oriented towards uh, facilitating that uh, and controlling that. And, you know, it's, it, there's a, a study that um, came out not too long ago, um, Carson Stringer's lab, uh, where they did some uh, very sort of wide scale imaging of neuronal activity in the brain. Uh, and what they found were all of these sort of ways in which uh, neuronal activity related to the movement of the mice, even mm -hmm. in primary visual areas yeah. where mm -hmm. we just right. think of, you know, taking in signals <laughs> from the outside world. Yes. We don't think of it as a movement area. And yet there's so much neuronal activity, even in visual cortex that's related to movement. We yeah. don't well, yeah. set ourselves up to be able to study that. These do bring up philosophical questions about, you know, biology, right? System theory, which you mentioned earlier, holism that goes way back to the Montpellier school of, you know, doctors, holism versus mechanism. Um, this comes up, I think, you know, I'm a kind of advocate for epistemological pluralism. In other words, studying a single neuron, as we've had conversations about, can reap tremendous benefits. And there are very mechanistic models that also um, create discovery that, that we are valuable. Um, the problem comes for me when dogma becomes part of the issue, right? When, I mean, it was mentioned earlier, modules in the brain, they're very, various kinds of modular thinking. Um, I think the evolutionary psychology modules have died, I hope, um, oh, but <laughs> after too long. Um, but, but again, this is all part of how we have to think. I have a very flexible way of thinking about epistemology, but not everybody does. Epistemological pluralism is interesting <laughs> to invoke in a conversation on psychosis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I think the, the big challenge I, I see with um, more fruitfully engaging psychosis is that we do invariably hit up against this opacity. Mm -hmm. And there's a, an inherently relational oh. um, dimension to the diagnosis. Yeah. We, we, we pronounce someone psychotic because they've violated some, some set of rules or mm -hmm. some verification mm -hmm. scheme. Mm -hmm. oh, 
Um, and they may not be suffering. Um, they often do, as you've mentioned, but um, they, they may feel that we're um, trying to pigeonhole them in some mm -hmm. category they don't belong to. So it, it, it is interesting to consider that opacity that, in, yeah. that we invariably hit up against where they're in, they're in the world in, in their way and, and the body being um, so, so deeply yeah. involved in the meaning making and epistemological process right. um, is, is the part social of context then it becomes extremely important, right? Don't you think? I mean, the context, because obviously psychotic experiences have been, there's a lot of work on this, have been understood in very different ways in different cultures. Oh, yeah. So there's a cultural relativity. So someone who's hearing voices, um, you know, in, in one culture doesn't necessarily suffer from exile from the community in the oh. way that psychiatric patients who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia and end up in a hospital suffer, you know, here in, in, in the United States, for example. I think this is what brings up the issue of thinking about the world, taking seriously the fact that, well, we all may exist in a Husserlian sense and one in the same life world, people inhabit different worlds. And I think the world of the psychotic is a very different kind of world than the world of the quote unquote normal subject. And I think that finding the bridges you know, across those worlds and under and trying to really understand their world from their perspective rather than that imposed perspective of, oh, they're hearing voices, there's something wrong, you know, majorly wrong here or, um, you know, inc incredibly dysfunctional. I think that's, a, that's, I think that's really promising in a lot of recent work that's been done in phenomenology and thinking critically about different worlds and uh, Mariana Ortega um, uh, uh, Latina feminist phenomenologist has written a book called Between Worlds and thinking about how sometimes people yeah. don't fit within a world sense of not being at ease in a certain world, which is an experience we can all have on occasion. Um, Rosemary Garland Thompson, who's a, a bioethicist and disability theorist feminist, has talked about misfitting. And, and, and I think that's been really useful for disability studies because also it creates a bridge because we've all had the experience of misfitting on some occasion or other, but socially misfitting, uh, you know, even physically misfitting in some ways, but thinking about misfitting of this way in which the body and the world aren't aligned in certain kinds of ways and how to get a better fit and to avoid a kind of normative, there's only one size fits all, but it's this body and this world and how to get those to fit together. So I think there's some really promising work that's being done, thinking seriously about worlds. And I, but one of the issues I think is is an, is 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 a major issue, especially in our country with our health insurance, is the specialization of medicine, and you're getting specialists treating different parts of the body, but not coordinating necessarily. It happens everywhere. You're not, I know you're yeah. not getting the holistic. Yeah. So that and that makes it more difficult too to arrive at the holistic solutions. If you've got different practitioners or different specialists treating the individual, but not with any kind of overall, no one sort of there um, coordinate working on that coordinating. Well, there is the tendency in medicine, but in you know since the beginning of modern science, right since the 17th century, to create these isolated parts, they're machine parts, and uh, when you think of how recently. Uh, the you know placebo studies 
you know, revealed that the nervous system and the immune system are highly related. It was assumed that they were separate because the assumption is always about separation, always about boundaries. And it was Robert Eder who did work on placebo from a very simple behaviorist point of view. And he made the leap that these rats were getting sick even when they weren't giving, getting a poison because the nervous system and the immune system had to be related, but he was a psychologist. So he hadn't bought the truism. Uh -huh. This is very interesting. We still teach uh, undergraduate students about the existence of the uh, autonomous nervous system which is yes. not autonomous at all. <laughs> it's fully integrated. It speaks with a, a prefrontal cortex, with the amygdala. The, uh, so it, it's all tightly integrated. And uh, But our uh, pedagogic uh, model in medicine, as we speak, uh, apparently doesn't know what's going on around the corner in the lab. And so we still keep teaching the body severed in pieces, each of those uh, making a distinct discipline. It happened to some relatives of mine addressing an orthopedic about a relative uh, kidney problem. And the orthopedic said, uh, the kidney, but what do I know? I'm an orthopedic <laughs> in a hospital, an MD. So this is the way it works many times. We should challenge that. We should. Because, I mean, it's all out there. I mean, it's clear that we should move towards a much bigger integration of our knowledge. And uh, we need a, synth a new synthesis. Well, you can imagine that if, um, if people are um, in these silos, if these practitioners are in silos, okay. it incentivizes the sort of categorizational, the category-centric mm -hmm. approach, because it's sort of like a lingua franca Say, look, I just, yeah. I, this is this small set of objective, you know, symptoms and signs. That's all I need for the diagnosis. Okay. It, it would be um, more conducive to having a sort of a dimensional approach if those silos did not exist, I think. Right? Well, and I think we are talking about what are now classified as psychiatric disorders, psychosis, and psychiatry has always for a long time, right, move back and forth between more phenomenological approaches and, you know, the sort of biomedicine model and, <laughs> and, and has had severe case of, of physics empty uh, uh, throughout because other physicians don't always regard psychiatrists as real doctors. Right, because uh, being a psychotic patient is not the same as having the measles. There's no pathogen that you can identify. And after, let's face it, billions of dollars spent, there isn't a single gene or a single biomarker worth its salt in a clinical situation that helps diagnose psychiatric illness. That's a big deal. I was um, speaking with a friend about 
psychologist who is a psychiatrist and he's involved in the liberation psychiatry oh. um, movement. Um, so when he heard the name, he said, oh, finally, you know, we're going to be talking about the, the carceral aspect of, of psychiatry, yeah. the, the, the ways that psychiatry has been involved in the um, demonization, yeah. incarceration, um, subjugation yeah. of people who are other. Um, and Including so, women who are just half the population, <laughs> right? And psychosis remains um, the, the mode of being that is most often associated with involuntary hospitalization. Yeah. Um, okay. With um, the Oh, yeah, there's no, there's no question they, they don't need help. The, the, mm -hmm. I, I think the, the point is that that um, the element of the social um, involvement where there's a uh, putting in place, uh, quite literally, of, of the person who's, who's being challenged by certain modes of psychology, oh. it's most, most salient in this realm. Um, oh, and, and I think the, the question when we're talking about how we might embrace more epistemological pluralism or fluidity or, or be able to um, acknowledge the, the very unique mode of being that psychotic individuals um, might have, how, how, do, how do we reconcile those things? How, how, do, we, how do we continue to see them as, as both um, in the world for us and also in the world for themselves, for for their own their own modes of being. Some of the way they are create anxiety in the other person. So there is a oh. protective element based on the anxiety that you feel, because it doesn't follow the logic that you have in your head, the expectations that you have in your head. They create social disease in others, you know. I think that's and so there's that removal, and then there's the world of the institution, which often is very sterile and is, you know, things are there's nothing personalized about that space. Um, it's removing them from all of that and sort of taking them out of the world and putting them in this institutionalized world, which is probably not the most conducive to having them be well, able no. to function back in the world but you're right that it's but not always so there were always patients in my experience again this is just my little volunteer class but there were always patients who wanted to stay mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there were patients who wanted to leave so mm -hmm. you know <laughs> you have different experiences there were patients who were in my class that i got to know over you know a couple of weeks who felt safer in the hospital, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. liked especially the, you know, arts, the activity. Um, and so, again, I think it varies. The old idea of the asylum is something that can be rethought, mm. I think, in different ways. Yeah, but uh, the point is that if one would 
want to take dimensionality seriously, the immediate implication, which uh, partly relates with individual medicine, everybody speaks about nowadays individual medicine, yeah. which is uh, uh, an optimal goal. Uh, the point is that it costs a lot of mm -hmm. money. And so how much our society is willing to invest uh, mm. from a public sphere, mostly in still, as we speak in, in, in Europe, in continental Europe, or uh, in a mixed uh, system like in this country. Um, in the early 70s, there was a, an, a very strong movement in Italy whose main goal was to um, yeah. close asylums. Mm -hmm. uh, Franco Basaglia was one of the most phenomenologically uh, trained, by the way. He was heavily uh, acquainted with uh, phenomenologically inspired psychopathology. And I think it was not coincidental that that brought him to, to say, we should close up these uh -huh. horrible places. Then he was uh, the first uh, uh, promulgator of a law that not only shut down all the asylums, but uh, plan to have protected homes for these patients with operators. Only part of that uh, uh, was realized and mainly in Northern Italy. In, in the vast part of the country, these people were released yeah. and let alone. Here too. And yeah, yeah, you walk in the wow. street, it's incredible how many uh, people uh, with, with uh, problems, mental problems uh, you see around. And, I read an interview in the Times about a guy working on an ambulance and he was telling, uh, well, we, when they commit a crime uh, or they, they um, hurt people or they, uh, they disturb people, we uh, put them on a bed in a hospital for a few days and then they are released, but there's no program uh, taking care, but because it costs a lot of money. And, uh, we spend a lot of money differently and our societies, our Western societies that I know, uh, they, they're well behind in, in uh, addressing the problems. The problems of alterity and diversity of which uh, psychosis is just a case. I mean, yeah, but also like the idea, this is, I think relates to what we've been talking about, about a social context and then voice hearing, which is a classic um, supposed symptom of psychosis. Well, okay, I am a voice hearer, not all the time, but especially before I go to sleep. Nabokov had it. There um, are lots of people who function perfectly well who hear voices a lot more than, than I do. Um, the interesting difference between some of my patients who heard voices and I who have heard voices is that I knew I was hearing voices. No, once we had a friend from Sarajevo who was in the middle of the war and he had, was staying with us at our house and he left the house. I heard the door close and a minute later I heard him say, help me. And I thought he had fallen. And I ran downstairs. That was a true hallucination because I, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and now, you know, they're talking to me. It was a real, he wasn't there. I had summoned his voice saying, help me. 
no doubt for meaningful reasons. He was coming from a war that was and telling terrifying stories, and that had become part of that, whatever my voice hearing tendency. I'm curious as to your use of the word I know or know. Um, I, the difference is I know I was hearing voices because the, the person with, it's a, with psych, I psychosis it's, would say the same thing. I know I'm hearing voices. Yeah, but, the, but usually they're often cosmological explanations. I mean, in my classes, for example, people had very elaborate explanations that I, for example, just to give myself, um, never had. I thought when I was 12 and I heard voices rather often, I thought I was going crazy. And if I told anybody, they would put me in a hospital. So it's a somewhat different- Your reality. I, my, my, yeah, exactly. I didn't think I had a, you know, chip in my head or, you know, or the Martians were coming, uh, alien invasion. Uh, I thought that if I said anything about this weird business, they would ship me away. <laughs> To Fairmont, <laughs> which were where they had the, the mental institution. So um, I didn't tell anyone, and they went away mostly. Well, it seems to me the question is about how much, what sort of evidence did you marshal in response to your hearing this voice? Like you thought about it. You said, "Oh, it sounds like he's downstairs. Let me go see." Right. Oh, yeah. um, I was interested in this <laughs> case. I want to go back to this idea about causality and psychosis because I, you know, I wake up in the morning. And some days I know I need to do something. And pretty much the first thought in my head is like, you know, get up because you got to do this, right? So there are times, because I'm really a lazy person in the morning where I, I wait a long time before I get out of bed, just relaxing, whatever. And I have to tell you, I don't know why I get up when I do. Like I just sort right. of find myself, I'm, oh, I've moved out of bed, right? So there are a lot of different, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. It's like, it seems pretty uh, quotidian. I'm just do that, right? But there are a lot of different ways I might relate to that delay and the sort of the my unconscious movement towards getting out of bed. I could say I'm depersonalized, like I did it, but I feel somehow alien from the person who got out of bed. Right. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah. I'm happy to say, but I could. I could say someone controlled my body, right? Some someone outside my body controlled me, and that's why I got up when I did because otherwise I don't see a cause. It seems to, I don't see, yeah, I just got out of bed, right? right? So it's really interesting to me, like, so where does, there are, those are different versions of causes really mm -hmm. across right, the spectrum, right, right? right? And the question I have is why do sometimes the patients with psychosis have such productive, elaborate explanations? Yes. Right? They almost seem over, Storyteller. yeah, they're like overabundant, like, you know, but right? And really elaborate, like cosmologies, that I found were often borrowed from religious traditions, various religious traditions, yep. depending on mm -hmm. the education and um, upbringing of the person in the class. Um, but they were never, in my experience, singular. It wasn't adopting a tradition. There were many aspects that were linked, and there were personal uh, parts of this huge cosmological elaborate and they wrote you know this was part of it so, and so i got to read some of this material which um was fascinated complex um and uh, borrowed from as far as i could tell from many different uh traditions 
I'm, I'm thinking about some of the patients that I saw when I was a resident who seem to exemplify certain philosophical systems. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> really see what dualism is like, you yeah. know, or um, animism, or, yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, there's the, you know, back to that idea of a, a super coherence, kind of an over identification with, with, a, with a scheme that mm -hmm. most of us might be able to contemplate in a bracketed way and, and, and not um, become stuck in. But somehow, for at least some, some people with psychosis, there's a real stuckness in that. Yeah. It seems more uh, that it originates in a, in a feeling rather than in some sort of rational process that you use to construct elaborate explanations of, of you know, well, why must I be hearing voices? It doesn't seem like when you pay attention to the uh, subjective experience, it doesn't seem like they're going through a, mm -hmm. a deliberate, rational, inferential sort of process to try and explain it's sort of they're expressing their sort of deeper, sort of more background feeling. I wonder if there's like a noetic feeling. Mm. You know, this, I, I work with psychedelics. And, and often there's a there's this sense of I know the truth. I and we tend to get a little wary when people oh, are um, knowing. <laughs> are very confident. But there, but there's this 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 real sense of conviction and 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 knowingness. Yeah. Um, what that, is that? Yeah. yeah and and, and perhaps that? that's part of the feeling. And it's a bodily feeling. Mm -hmm. right? I think so. So John Nash would say right about his delusional thoughts that they were like mathematical truths. Yeah, he, he experienced them in the same way. Yeah, it's a matter of, of uh, we are back to dimensionality. I mean, the problem you, you, you were uh, telling us about uh, how come could I get out of bed? And coincidentally, I think it was last night I was reading in a novel, the author was treating uh, exactly this point what, what makes people getting out of bed. Uh, <laughs> This can be the topic for uh, a philosophical paper or uh, a psychological dissertation or something to be discussed with colleagues and friends uh, around the table as we are doing here. But when it becomes the, the center of gravity of your whole existence, then uh, Louis Sass would, would designate yeah. it as hyperreflexivity. And hyperreflexivity yeah. is really the cornerstone of the way you deal with your presence in the world, then we uh, we speak of psychosis. But again, uh, and your voices example is, is, is beautiful because uh, it says that there's nothing totally alien in hearing voices. No, I mean you can hear voices and be a marvelous novel writer, or you can hear voices and being a psychotic patient in war. Uh, we are dealing with the same bricks. With which you can build different uh -huh. Once we understand that, I think it would be a bit. Better. And we are dealing with the same bricks, but those bricks are doing different things. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So you have a psychotic patient who's in a state of chronic hallucinatory psychosis. That person's life is dominated yeah. by those voices. Oh. It's not like series example she goes down the stairs and says well the guy isn't there but 
it's completely dominated as a result of which no other functioning is possible. That's oh, right. Just some amount of functioning connected to survival, but nothing else. Oh. Well, and, and I, again, degrees of terrible torment for some people. Not everyone, right? But some people are in states of horrifying suffering and torment. And then one wants to marshal every possible aid. Now, there is a further social dimension that we've experienced, I think, with the pandemic and with, with politics, which is that pattern seeking um, can have this larger uh, political aspect um, with things like QAnon, which have very powerful resemblances to certain psychotic um, states where again there's a logic that propels the discourse uh, and it's often centered on the importance of being part of the the team uh, yeah and it feels deeply meaningful and has a moral uh, uh, aspect too the ways we um one of the ways we um assess a false idea let's say or an idea that we're not sure whether it's false or not is we go and investigate right that's what and that's what you did in fact you went down and you said yeah oh that's not what i thought right, right? um if you talk about QAnon, there's there's not any obvious way except if you go down to the pizza restaurant and try <laughs> oh, to find right. a basement it wasn't true. there well that was it right that look at the extent to which that one individual had to go to realize that his belief was false, right? He had to go that far because otherwise most people don't have those opportunities. Yeah. They're, they're swimming in a lot of false narrative and they can't enact. That's where I think the body comes in again because the body does the investigating typically. It's true, right? but there's a lot of marshalling on evidence of evidence in these mm -hmm. um, groups oh, well. as well. And I, I did once, it, it did scare me a bit, I have to say, but I did look into some of these chats rooms and there's a lot of numbers a lot of statistical uh, uh proof that's offered uh so it it's not that the patterns are nonsensical which brings us back to your earlier comment um they're they they make a kind of sense often they're ragged holes in within those patterns that you know, if you have a different point of view, you could point that out, but they then are self-creating in a way. I think we're kind of dealing, you know, with the, the question of uh, how do we as uh, society, as people decide what counts as acceptable realities uh, to hold. I mean, we're exploring what are all the ways in which someone's reality and world can differ uh -huh. and then how do we decide which ones are acceptable or not? <laughs> I'm still a little bit not clear, but uh, I think, Vittorio, you're talking about the role of the body in psychosis. Yep. Or the, so what is the role of the body in psychosis? In other words, in what... Uh -huh way or, or is it that you're saying 
understanding the body better and its reactions better, it could help us get a better understanding of psychosis. It's both. I mean, the body is highly relevant for our cognition. I mean, our cognition is the intrinsically uh, bodily based, and we are rediscovering this truth after centuries. Many people have the same intuition. Emotion, Particularly, the, emotion not the only same. emotion, but also language. Uh, language uh -huh. is another uh -huh. a bodily dimension that, that got completely washed out by, by um, the, the classic cognitive paradigm. But to stay on the body, for example, uh, the way we relate to others uh, means that to a various degree, we try to attune to the other. Yeah. Uh, and this attunement to the other uh, at the level of uh, the brain body mm -hmm. is made of a variety of methods. For example, how do I understand that you are having a pleasant experience if someone caresses your cheek or you are having a totally unpleasant one if someone uh, uh, knock you on the face. And one of the mechanisms that uh, uh, were revealed by neuroscientific investigation is, for example, that the very same part of your brain that maps your tactile sensation yeah. on your own body become active also when you witness yeah. those tactile experiences on the body of others. And in, for example, one of our studies show it that in first episode of schizophrenic patients, this mechanism is not functioning properly. First, because those areas are less active uh, when they witness the experience of someone else, but simultaneously another part of the brain that normally gives a sort of affective uh, quality to the experience of being touched, which is the posterior insula in healthy controls shuts off when you witness the, tact the pleasant uh, or unpleasant tactile experience of someone else. This didn't happen. And with a colleague uh, who is in Quebec, uh, Georg Norto, yeah. who is a psychiatrist, yeah. psychoanalyst, a philosopher, is a renaissance kind of yeah. uh, psychiatrist, yeah. allow me this expression. We studied the brain connectivity of this very same first episode uh, uh, patient. And it turns that they have uh, a deficient connectivity uh, between the posterior insula and uh, uh, the anterior part of the insula and the uh, posterior cingulate cortex. While they have an abnormal connectivity with respect to control uh, between the ventral premotor cortex, which sits on the lateral surface of the hemisphere, and the very same posterior cingulate cortex which according to Northup is part of brain circuit that is mapping the ego from a self-referential point of view, while the lateral surface of the hemisphere would be more focused on what happened to me in relation to the external. You see? Right. So these are all another element I was mentioning before, which is also interesting because it, 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 it opens uh, um, interesting perspective for uh, rehabilitation intervention. Schizophrenic uh, tend to have uh, a mapping of the peripersonal space, which is uh, tighter, more shrink with respect to healthy control. However, this peripersonal space can be expanded 
through motor exercise. This was mm. question mm. in, in single neurons in macaques mm. and then demonstrated in humans by a variety of studies. If you have someone retrieving objects using a rake, which extends uh, the reachability out there in the space of your forearm, then the very same neuro that map your very personal space, so, so to speak, embody this tool, which become part of your uh, body scheme, okay? So this very personal space is plastic, can be expanded through motor exercise. This dynamicity is found also in schizophrenia. So they start from a uh, shrinker, smaller, very personal space, but this can expand as that of non-schizophrenic individual through motor exercise. And we don't know why the dynamic processes of the brain that are developmental have ended up shrinking that peripersonal space in schizophrenic patients. Yeah. Another interesting aspect uh, that relates the body uh, uh, with schizophrenia is that um, if you look very carefully, you can see highly significant correlations between the phenomenality of the patient that you can study with a variety of scale. And we, we, we tend to use the, the Bond scale of uh, basic things, the SPI, uh, schizophrenia, proneness, instrument for adults. And basic symptoms are very interesting because they can be found even in the prodromic phases mm. of, the, of, the, of the disease and are rather stable, even during the chronic phase. We found significant correlation between the phenomenality of being schizophrenic as evaluated by this scale, which are more significantly correlating with the neurobiological evidence, at least in our hands with respect to a more standard scale that we use to evaluate positive and negative symptoms like the plant scale, okay? So the more severe your symptoms are, the more deficient is the activation of this bodily related circuit that connects your body to the other, uh, most likely enabling you to appreciate the similarity of the other but granting to the other uh, its status of alterity, which is what I Fulung is all about, okay? It's not my thing, it's your feeling that I understand. So yeah, Husserl yeah. is very clear in mm -hmm. saying that uh, you must, and that's why they, they crucify the poor lips. Lips <laughs> are yeah. considered too projective uh, when it comes to Einstein. But anyway, that's a different story. So the point is that you can, uh, uh, you can study the first person experience of a patient and link it to uh, the way of functioning of his brain body. And this is something that very few uh, labs are doing uh, in the world as we speak. And I hope that more people will uh, maybe, uh, beside uh, the, the genetics and uh, uh, serotonin or dopamine or whatever, a take on the issue will start developing also this form of correlation, which are highly important. I think we might have time to take a few questions from the audience. So if you're interested, you want to come up to the microphone and please keep your questions. It's on. Yes, 
Hi, uh, Laura Price. I'm a psychiatric social worker. I work with uh, patients with severe mental illness at a city hospital. I just wanted to say one thing about regarding like being in asylums and institutionalization. I I work with this every day. I, you know, I wasn't there for the history because I'm, you know, I'm 42, but I know it was very horrific how people with severe mental illness were treated. Um, you know, there are really some good initiatives out there. We work a lot with supportive housing. There really is a huge push to get, um, you know, SMI patients, you know, living on their own. There was like a lawsuit against New York State. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. So we have an adult initiative. We have some patients that it's amazing. Like they, they're very institutionalized. You know, they really, some of them were abused when they were young and they were just like thrown into adult homes in far Rockaway and they're trying to live on their own in supportive housing in, in Jackson Heights, Queens. So it's really, it, this is, it's kind of an emotional mm -hmm. um, topic for me. Anyway, so my question is about, I'm going to mispronounce this, so I need the experts in the room. The anhedonia. Yeah. Right. Lack of insight, right? Yeah. Well, no lack of pleasure. Sorry. I but lack of insight is one of the checklists. Right. So the lack of insight. I know there's yeah. a medical. Yeah, checklist. there is. Is there anything in the pipeline to address that, like with rehab or pharmacological treatment? Because we have some patients that are really suffering, like who really just, they don't know that but, they're sick and it's really hard to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take care of them. Yeah. Thank you. The, the well, I think psychiatrist, what, yeah. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I saw uh, Ed Smiles uh, at me when that question was asked because uh, I, you know, I do work with these these substances called psychedelics that are now being um, touted as mm -hmm. um, uh, enhancers of insights and might might provide opportunity for new perspectives. One one frontier that this area hasn't reached is giving these substances to people with psychosis um, because of concerns about exacerbating the the problem. But if we were to think um, more fundamentally about what these substances are doing and and how they might be helpful for for people with issues of Inside or or even alexithymia. Yeah, I was thinking about um, maybe even more behavioral strategies. Of of um, uh, I, I thinking about Labord, you know, the Guattari clinic that involved. Um, it, most famously, people would have these. Um, it, it's a non-hierarchical clinic in, in France that was um, oriented around um, rethinking um, one's relation to others, especially within power structures. And the patients and staff would stage plays together. They would take on roles. The, the thinking being that this is a way of practicing being in the world together, but also a way of um, paying, paying deeper attention to oneself. You know, when, when occupying a role, one, one has this, this distance between what one is and what one is presenting as, and, and there's opportunity for, for thinking deeply about things. You know, that, that German saying, a um, person who only knows his family doesn't even know his family. Um, so similarly, I think with, with that, especially that 
uh, yeah. very, very personal space being yeah. so constricted, being able to broaden it in a, in a more intersubjective the, social way. The distance is a fascinating and important thing to say, especially with arts therapy, which is what you mentioned here. Uh, theater is one. Um, writing, I realized that for patients, writing, putting the word I on a piece of paper and writing a text that does not move, then everyone around the table can look at that text. I call it the alien familiar, right? So it's an I, but the distance mm -hmm. can also have a cooling effect on, uh, you know, the patient on the group. And I, I really believe that this can have therapeutic effects. You could see it in the mm -hmm. room. I had no scientific ability to follow any of this up. I, you know, could have evaporated after five minutes. But during that time, that alien familiar played, I think, an important role in is what Virginia Woolf called cooling mm -hmm. when she was writing her diaries, right? And she suffered from um, uh, what was then called manic depression, now, you know, bipolar disorder. But uh, she felt that the diary had that effect, essentially an antipsychotic mm -hmm. effect for her. Yeah, that process of reconciling with the alienness. Yeah. Turning it into something familiar with which yeah, well, the self in, in language is already an alien familiar, right? It's the it's it's not the embodied self. It is the self on the page away from this, and that away quality can have therapeutic benefits. That's why a lot of people write. <laughs> but you know, there's a, a component also I want to add, which is the empathy that you exhibit when you deal with these patients because yes, you're interested also in what they're writing, right? Yes. And you want to understand their experience. I, I mean, I find that that's sort of like, uh, even to go so far as to be transparent about your, your own personal struggles with the patients for insight, even to say that in a way that's not judgmental, you know, this just puts me in a difficult position vis-a-vis -vis you because we're having this problem. You don't, you don't, you, you're rejecting. What can we do about that? And over time, it's not an easy thing and it doesn't always work, but I think over time, these patients, and it could be quite a long time, they could develop more insight. No, I think that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Do you want to go up to the microphone, please? <laughs> Who died? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask the panel: uh, Where is psychopharmacology? That's a big question. But where is psychopharmacology going with all of this, anyway? I mean, there's a revolution in psychopharmacology, right? In the last decades. No, or, is no. it good? Is it bad? Is no. it no? Is it the no, there, there are no new drugs except for what I'm, I'm a layman. So, I, who had a schizophrenic system for many, many years and dealt with things as a layman with institutions. Yeah, that, so, I don't know, but I'm and and you know, medication became a, a large part of her, you know, managing right. her life and so on. 
but I'm just wondering in a more broad area, as you're discussing, where's that all going? Well, you're, the, you're the closest to the... Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's, okay, yeah, go, yeah, go. exactly. That's, that is something that we discuss is really how we're kind of um, at an impasse in terms of developing new uh, psychopharmacologic treatments. I mean, the, the newest psychopharmacologic treatments are also old and they're mm -hmm. the psychedelic. Yeah. Um, as making uh, resurgence to treat certain conditions, but in terms of you know new treatments for schizophrenia, it's it's yeah. it's pretty limited, and I think that just reflects you know the the state of the neuroscience that underlies uh, our understanding of these conditions. So, particularly for negative, mm -hmm. and and money has been withdrawn. If you look at the, you know, there was enormous sums of money poured into both genetic and neuroscience research. Um, let's face it, the ongoing fantasy was pretty reductive. You were going to find a part of the brain. Remember, uh, you know, schizophrenia is a brain disease, which is like saying nothing, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like zero meaning to that, right? But the idea was that you could show um, diminished gray matter in schizophrenics, right? You can show this. It, it's not really a biomarker because you can also show it in pregnant women and poor children. Mm. Um, so that kind of biomarker turns out to be useless from a clinical point of view, um, not uninteresting to ask ourselves what that means. But if it also relates to say malnourished children, and pregnant women, how do we, um, how do we put all that together? Well, there's one benefit. The brain disease has its importance because it's saying it's not your mother's bad behavior who caused it, which was a thinking not so long. And also that medications, brain-based medications, are the way to address it as opposed to other interventions well but, but actually even in psychosis there are psychotherapeutic uh, uh approaches that have had very good effect i think they are not funded the research isn't funded because people don't stand to companies don't stand to make huge sums of money on those treatments but there's quite a bit of research that shows that psychodynamic psychotherapy has had uh, positive effects on people with all kinds of uh, different diagnoses. So um, it's a it's a mixed bag here. I'm also a psychopharmacologist. Um, I would say that uh, it, it's it would be false to go so far as to say the meds don't do any good. Oh they, no! They, I, oh I, oh yeah, right. no! I'm saying that. that. Right, right. No, no, no. And that's no, the no. point of what we're talking about. I think. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> and there are a few new no. drugs that are different. The problem with most of the pharmacological research, pharmaceutical research is that there's a lot of, you know, they call me too drugs, They're drugs that work the same way the last successful, you know, big budget yeah, they, drug works. So they do right. something just like it. But there are a few, a few examples of drugs that are not like this. There's a new one called Xenomaline, Xenomaline, which works through acetylcholine. And that's a new approach to treating these patients. Uh, Pimavanserin is a little bit of a novel antipsychotic, so they're they're there's moving. But what I find so interesting is that everything we talked about today, so all this phenomenological um, le level of discourse, we medicines are not getting at those particular things. You know, it it you think about it, most of what we said today had to do with well relating to the patient 
and understanding the patient holistically. And whatever it is about the disconnect between the body, if there's a neurobiological explanation, whatever that disconnect is, the medicines aren't touching that yet. I don't think there's a yeah, medicine. Yeah, I mean, that. Yeah. that doesn't mean being less scientific than speaking about receptor of neurotransmitters. I agree. Exactly the other way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's clear that the, the brain functions in a certain way because neurotransmitters and receptors function in the very same way. But nobody would dare to believe that we can find a solution of mental diseases, say schizophrenia, by dealing with protons, okay? Then no. I, I don't want to compare neurotransmitters oh. and receptors to protons, but in a way, you need more than that, okay? Yeah. You need to put in, in place in the picture other variables, which are the fact mainly that we are never dealing with the brain in a vat. We are no. dealing with a brain which is wired to a body, which lives in a physical world, dealing with other brain bodies. Exactly. That's the point. Yeah. So what my brain, the way my brain maps my being in the world is the outcome of a variety of a multiplicity of causal factors. You were dealing with causal factors. My life in utero, the kind of pregnancy that my mother uh, yeah. entertained, the quantity and quality of social encounters I, I happened to develop during my life, yeah. the way congenitally my brain was wired, because mm -hmm. let's not forget that there is a, a strong genetic dimension to schizophrenia, like uh, in autism or in other oh. um, uh, conditions. Oh. So it's all this puzzle that we need to put in focus. If we are looking for the magical pill that uh, once taken will uh, dissolve all of my problems and uh, turning myself in a successful, high-functioning uh, Western world guy, uh, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. To me, one of the biggest problems is that we're actually, from a neuroscience standpoint, we're not working with adequate descriptions and characterizations of the phenomena that we're trying to treat. That's right. And yeah, that's I where think I think right. phenomenology has a really important role to play and why we need to really seriously integrate that in yeah. our neuroscientific research. Life is experience. Well, yeah. and also yeah. to not be terrified by a subjective report, right? That you can have collections of patient uh, uh, testimony. And that should be part of the science. And it so rarely is. In medicine, you have case studies, not as many as there used to be, but case studies, and you never have quotations anymore <laughs> from the patient. Okay, I have, Arthur is great because it's the body here. This is beautiful. Um, he is talking about his suffering. Um, he says, this is sensory, the body, think about it. He said, if it is cold, I can still say that it is cold. But there are also times when I am incapable of saying it. This is a fact. For there is in me something damaged from the emotional point of view. And if someone asked me why I could not say it, I would answer that my inner feeling on this slight and neutral point did not correspond to the three simple little words 
I would have to pronounce. And this lack of correspondence, therefore, between a physiological sensation and its emotional response in the first place, and next, its intellectual response, insofar as it is possible to summarize and synthesize in general terms this series of swift, almost instantaneous operations which give rise to the truism, it is cold. This lack of correspondence, since it does not select its subjects on, on sp or, or spare me in any way, culminates as it spreads in the colossal troubles which correspond perfectly, alas, to the loss of personality. I mean, this is profound. This is a description of such nuance by a person of such high intelligence who is working so hard to describe what is happening. Is this not valuable to medicine? You bet it is. But sometimes that level of lucidity, like I was thinking you invoked um, Binswanger earlier yeah. and thinking about the case of Ellen West and oh, yes. how lucid she was. She knew exactly her ide fixe. Um, and the whole, I'm thinking about the the um, Foucault, Binswanger, Dream and Existence volume um, too, that has, I mean, they talk about that, but the case of Ellen West, which is followed by the, the, the diagnoses where they, none of them are as, lucid or, or clear as she is about what she's she's laying it out she's stating it and nobody can help her so it's there's a level of insight there sort of the opposite of what she was asked you were asking earlier about your patients lack of insight so having insight doesn't necessarily get you um, the kind of treatment that yeah. you might think you could get and that just that that failed case I thought was so, is I just was so struck I've always you know Come back to that. It's just, Vanger got it wrong also with Abby Barr. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. yes, yes. The right it's her testimony. It's just what you're saying, Siri, the power yeah. of the testimony. And it's and 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 also I think you know to keep thinking that human beings are people who make meaning. We make meaning in multiple ways, um, through patterns. And so you want to hear Virginia Woolf? I love Virginia Woolf. Okay. So this is about her, her psychosis. She gave this, um, it's called Old Bloomsbury. It's, this is just a little part of it. And she gave it at the memoir club. She was doing fine when she gave this. When I look back on that house, it seems so crowded with scenes of family life, grotesque, comic, and tragic, with the violent emotions of youth, revolt, despair, intoxicating happiness, immense boredom, with parties of the famous and the dull, with rages again, George and Gerald, with love scene with Jack Hills, with passionate affection for my father, alternating with passionate hatred of him, all tingling and vibrating in an atmosphere of youthful bewilderment and curiosity, that I feel suffocated by the recollection. When I recovered from the illness that was not unnaturally the result of all these emotions and complications, 22 Hyde Park no longer existed. While I had lain in bed thinking that birds were singing Greek choruses 
and that King Edward was using the foulest language possible among Ozzie Dickinson's azaleas. Vanessa had wound up Hyde Park once and for all. That's great. It's yeah. <laughs> I think um, we might have time for one last question. Is anyone interested? You want to come up, please? <clears throat> so quickly, first of all, thank you. This has been a very interesting uh, conversation. I was struck by the fact that hearing voices is the shorthand that uh, we're using to describe auditory hallucinations because, of course, it's uh, something that we all do. It's a means that your mind is functioning properly. We're all hearing. We just heard voices just now. But what we're referring to is the sense that, uh, that well, hopefully we're hearing voices. Um, we're feeling textures. We're That's tasting tastes. Yes. You know, we're doing all these things. But um, it reminded me that uh, what we're really talking about is the not being in the world. There's a, there's a sort of, a, I think, a consensus that something of the insights of phenomenological uh, experience um, help us understand psychosis in an important way beyond yeah. the pharma <gasps> pharmaceutical. Yeah. Um, but that world is really what's interesting about the question, right? And I was, I was just, <laughs> as I was sitting, I was imagining um, a patient perhaps who says, you know, I'm crippled by this sense that when I eat, that the food becomes human flesh inside of me. And it's yeah. terrifying. And, oh, yeah. you mean the Eucharist? Like, yeah. so yeah. that yeah. led me to wonder, what about the religious? How do you approach psychosis from the perspective of religiosity and for people <gasps> for whom for that the world is occupied by presences and experiences that in a, in a sort of a clinical condition you might describe as, as um, hallucinatory? <laughs> well, yeah, that's something that we're uh, <laughs> working to better contend with as uh, a field, I would say, because, you know, that, I mean, that really touches on one of, you know, that broader issue that, that we referenced a few times of where do you draw these lines that we're trying to draw and when, when does someone's reality differ so much in such and such a way that uh, we as a society decide there's something wrong with that. Um, and often it ends up being a, a matter of degree, not necessarily the best way to do it. But, um, you know, we certainly are trying to do a better job of taking in cultural context. Um, as I think this discussion reflects, we need to do an even better job. But that's, I guess the, the main thing that I would say is that that's, you know, it's a, a very challenging issue that gets at a lot, uh, kind of the heart of a lot of what we were discussing that we really need to continue to work on. I, I just need to mention two artistic um, films that deal with this problem in terms of the community relationship and attitude toward it. One was an old Italian film by the Taviani brothers called Chaos. Mm -hmm. And in it, one man would, as a lunatic, would howl at the moon every time it was a full moon. So the village just tied him to a tree and he howled like a wolf at the, at the moon. And then the next day they untied him and he lived the other 27 days until the next moon. And there's a wonderful film out right now called Empire of Light 
a Sam Mendes film where Olivia Coleman plays a schizophrenic woman in a mm -hmm. small English village. And everyone on the staff of the movie theater that she's in just knows she's going to have schizophrenic episodes. And they deal with it and they cover for her when she's hospitalized. And it's, it's so, they're both so moving in terms of what our attitude is toward people who go through these experiences. I just wanted to mention them. She's up for an Academy Award for that role. Good. Of light. One. I just wanted to add one more thing about the way she acted. A lot of times, just the simple thing to do. What do the people in the first family thing or yeah um but also the question is does it is it divisive or does it duplicate conflicts with people <laughs> or is it allowing them to really have a wonderful bond with people because that's the whole idea of the religion brotherhood or sisterhood so i think that's an important thing like it goes back to the question so does the illness create conflict and tension either for the people who are suffering or for the loved ones and people around them who are chronically in isolation? But religion isn't very interesting if it, if it doesn't involve conflict. Um, well, like, ideally, they, it won't. Right? Um, That's not true of all people who are. I think, I think about Jesus. I came not to bring peace, but the sword. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, that there's invariably going to be some disruption in in religious expression even 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 when the person is expressing the religion according to the, the tenets of, that it, it's it's um you know anchored in something ineffable yeah. and well the um, cannibalism is interesting that he brought up right because it turned out um that the early, yeah, the Eucharist, sorry, that the, um, that the early, that the turn against the Jews, right, who <laughs> during the uh, medieval period were blamed for plague, for eating the flesh, right? Chill, it was like an, it's an inversion of the Eucharist in, in that case. So the other scapegoating is something that, and enter into this discussion too. Yeah, not very large <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank everyone on the panel for a really stimulating talk today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking the religious example moves you from hearing voices and speaking in tongues. You know, which is very that's what I try to set up there and um yeah. Okay. 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 Y